in church. I uh, come from a church family and we just spent, I spent my whole life in church. It's just second home, always has been. It's all, I, all I've known in a lot of ways. And I've been to a wide variety of churches, uh, both as a member and sometimes on staff. And uh, as a minister, I've often made a point of visiting my colleagues' churches to see how they function, to get to know them better in their ministries and to see how it all works and and what that looks like. And I've seen some things that I love and I've seen some things I didn't love as much. And and uh, so you, you get all this these different perspectives and all these different ideas and sometimes you have to sort of step back and ask yourself, well, what what should the church really look like? We all have a perspective on that. We look to our experiences. We know what we like and don't like about churches we've been a part of. But that's a very subjective way of trying to answer that question. What should the church look like? I know when we talk about the church, we think uh, often of buildings. Well, if you were raised Catholic, then you're, you're your assumption probably is that the church might look like a cathedral. If you came to faith during the modern megachurch movement, then you think that the church maybe is supposed to look like a shopping mall. I know we have people here that are very proud of the fact that our church looks like a church. But what does that mean exactly? The early Christians would not come into this facility and recognize it immediately as a church. And no experience of anything like this. It's all very subjective. And then we started thinking, well, we know really, even though we associate the church with its facility, we know that the, the building isn't the church. It's, it's the people, right? And so then we started thinking, what are the metaphors that we can use to understand what a church is? And, and, I, and we hear lots of different metaphors. I've heard people say the church is like a hospital. It's a place for uh, the sort of wounded and, and broken of the world to come and find healing and, and health, spiritual health. And uh, other people say, no, the church is more of a, a, a mission society. It's a place where we come together and we, we plan the work and then we go out into the world or we send people out into the world to, uh, to share the gospel around the world. I had one lady at one of the churches that I worked at that regularly told me that the church needed to be more like Cheers because it's a place where everybody knows your name. So in that metaphor, I guess the church is like a bar or a pub. We have all these metaphors, and, and some of them get at pieces of what the church is about, but none of them are quite complete. And yet we all have, e even if we don't acknowledge it, we all have in our mind a, a sort of a picture of what the ideal church is, what it, what it looks like. 
and it is rooted in our, in our really subjective experience of church. But what is it supposed to look like? It's because we have this picture in our mind that we have to willfully choose to step back from ourselves and ask the question, what is it really supposed to look like? Not what do I expect it to look like, but what is it supposed to look like? And, and if we could understand what that ideal is, why is it so hard? Why is it so hard to get where we're supposed to be? Now, these are the kind of questions that we're facing Joshua and Zerubbabel as they go about this work of rebuilding the temple. And so this morning we find ourselves reviewing the events of the first six chapters of Ezra. And you see, uh, during this time period, we have the last three prophets of the Old Testament narrative, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Today, we want to look at that same story that we looked at before, but we're going to look at it through the lens of the prophet Haggai. It's a very short book. It's only two chapters. So I encourage you to, uh, I encourage you to read it won't take you but a, a few minutes, but uh, as, and some really good stuff in there. But we're gonna we're gonna do a quick overview this morning, nonetheless. In Haggai one verse two, this is what the Lord Almighty says: These people say, "Time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord." Now recall from our study in Ezra, the people have the authority to rebuild the temple. They have the resources to rebuild the temple. But at this point in the story, they don't have the will to rebuild the temple. And the reason they don't have the will, I don't know what's going on with this. The reason they don't have the will, as you will recall, is that they are now facing open opposition. There are people who uh, have been around them, They've been worried about these people since they arrived back at Jerusalem. They've been concerned that these people might make trouble for them. And now those people have openly opposed them. And so we back away. It's a remarkable statement that they make. That the, this is not the time. The time hasn't come. Because this is why they're there. My daughters leave for Mexico next month. Okay, This would be like them, arriving in Mexico, arriving at the children's home where they're going to be working and saying, the time has not yet come to work with children. That's essentially where these folks are. This is why they left. This is why they arrived in Jerusalem. This is their purpose. It, it's been commissioned by the king. More importantly, it's been commissioned by God. And they're waiting around. This is not, the time, time hasn't come yet. They are afraid. And fear paralyzes mission. It really doesn't matter what we're afraid of. It doesn't matter if we are afraid of opposition or persecution, of disappointment, of hardship, of heartache. It doesn't matter what we fear. As a matter of fact, we can fear success as failure. 
it doesn't matter what we fear. Once fear becomes the motivation for what we do, mission is no longer the motivation. It is entirely displaced. We are making decisions by a completely different standard. And I don't know about you, but I spend a lot of my time being afraid of things. It's never really been a good life strategy. Yeah, fear in the right circumstances may be the motivation that you need. The motivation to protect yourself, the motivation to get out of harm's way. But it's not a good life strategy. It's good for a moment. It's not good for a season. Fear paralyzes us in our mission. It turns our attention inward, turns our focus away from the kingdom, and puts our focus on self-preservation and security and comfort. We find ourselves awaiting the time when it becomes safe for us to engage the mission again, and surprisingly enough, that time never seems to arrive. We become, basically, again, like Israel on the banks of Jordan, looking over the river, seeing the promised land, having testimony from the spies that went into the promised land about how it's everything that God said it would be. But we're afraid, and so we won't go. We'll wander for another 40 years instead, because fear has replaced mission. Jesus says, you will have tribulation. You will. He doesn't sugarcoat it. He doesn't say, don't worry, I'll protect you from all harm. He doesn't say, this is going to be easy for you. He says, in this world, you will have trouble. But do not be afraid, because I've already defeated this world. I've already overcome. Fear gives rise to other problems. In verse 4 of that same chapter, Haggai says, Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Here's the problem. As our vision turns inward, our focus leaves God and becomes us. It's about me. We become focused on ourselves. And selfishness completely empties us of purpose. While God's purpose for them sits idle, their personal interests are still advanced. And I think it's fascinating how it always works out this way. While we'll be debating the path forward for God's house, we go on building our own homes. See, when fear and self-interest combine, God's purpose for our lives languishes. It just just can't be fulfilled. And the prophet says to them, would you look at the situation that you have? What you're doing for yourself doesn't even work for yourself. 
you've neglected my mission while you've continued with your, in your own personal interests. But look what happens. God's blessing has been withheld from you. You're not, you're not reaping the crops that you want to. The blessing isn't coming. You're working for your own contentment, and yet you're not content ever. And so here is the end result of our self-interest and our self-pursuit. We fail to accomplish the mission of God, and we don't even achieve the things that we wanted for ourselves in the first place. It is a failing strategy. Now, Jesus says, if you want to save your own life, lose it. Because everyone who tries to save their own life will lose it. Those who lose it for my sake will gain it. One of those paradoxical statements that Jesus makes that we can spend a lifetime trying to unpack. Folks, people are selfish. I'm selfish. You're selfish. Sometimes we are better at hiding it than at other times. Sometimes virtue and the fruits of the Spirit because of Jesus' transformative work in our life, begins to displace that selfishness and replace it with something healthier. But don't be deceived. Selfishness is in our fallen human nature. And when we're afraid, it is more often than not what we will fall back on. We will look to protect and care for ourselves above all else. It uh, reminds me of this, uh, this great story, this great picture that uh, Garrison Keillor describes. He's talking about what a Midwest barbecue is like. He says, at a Midwest barbecue, all the men at the barbecue are gathered around the barbecue pit. And all of them need to be heard. And no burger can come off of the barbecue until the very last one is convinced that they're all done. And so by the time they finally pull the barbecues off of the grill, they are charcoal briquettes. And he says, then we all put them inside the bun and put all this other stuff on it and start eating our charcoal briquette burgers. And everybody says, mmm, good burger. You really know how to cook them. Why? Because we're all pretending that what we got is actually what we wanted. But when we act out of self-interest, we don't accomplish God's purpose, and more often than not, we don't even accomplish our own. Jesus says that this journey of discipleship begins with self-denial, and that's because selfishness is part of our nature. And the only way that we can make this journey with Jesus is to set that aside, to repent of it, to be done with it. And you'll recall from our study of this story before that the, this people, Zerubbabel and Joshua and the remnant in Jerusalem, they actually listen to the prophet. They're actually touched and convinced. And they begin this work. They renew their mission and their purpose 
they set their fear aside, they set their self-interest aside, and they begin to work on the temple again. And Haggai says in verse 13 and 14, the Lord's messenger gave this message of the Lord to the people, I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God. Obedience yields opportunity. Just as when Israel was on the banks of the Jordan, the promised land can only be realized if the people are willing to act in faith. Jesus says, once you've denied yourself, once you've taken that first crucial step, you take up your cross and you follow me. Consider your life forfeit to me. That's really, there's, there's, there's not much symbolism for the cross at this point except death. He's saying, put your life on the line, put your life in my care, and come with me. Let's go. And though the situation is seemingly desperate, Haggai relates to us that spirits were in fact stirred up. The people renew their passion. And they renew their passion in a setting where they hear this message from their prophet, this message from God that is the message we always want to hear in every generation of God's people, and that is, I am with you. If God is with us, everything else will work out. He goes on in, in chapter 2, starting with verse 6. So this is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, once more, I will once more shake the heavens and all the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations. And what is desired by all nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine and the gold is mine declares the Lord Almighty, the glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. See, faithfulness meets with reward. Haggai addresses those who knew the, the glory of the former temple. He says to them, I know that in your eyes this must appear as nothing. But wait until you see what God does with it. Wait until you see that. There's a promise in this that if we are faithful to God's purpose, God will respond in kind. When we do the work, even when we can't necessarily see what the work will yield. When we do the work, God will respond in kind. God will be faithful. God will show us what he had in mind. Then he says in verses 13 and 14, if a person defiled by contact with a dead body touches one of these things, 
Does it become defiled? Yes, the priest replied, it becomes defiled. Then Haggai said, so it is with the people of this nation in my sight, declares the Lord. Whatever they do and whatever they offer there is defiled. Hmm. There's a message here. Impurity poisons kingdom. This message of the prophet is, is given somewhat in hindsight. He talks about what the people were experiencing as, th- as they failed to accomplish their mission, the lack of God's blessing on their life. He says, all of that is about to change because you've changed your direction. But here's what the problem was. When you live in fear, when you live in self-interest, when you live in worldly concerns, nothing that you offer the Lord is really pure. You can't mix these up. Our God really is an all-or-nothing God. What he says about himself is, I'm a very jealous God. So I'm not going to put up with your idolatry. I'm not going to put up with your graven images. I'm not going to put up with this other God nonsense. I'm a jealous God. We try to find ways, don't we? Sort of straddle that fence. Humanity always does. You know, back in the 80s and 90s, church growth movements were all about advocating these community surveys. So you, what you did is you went out to the community and you knocked on the doors and you said, we're thinking of starting a church here. What would you like a church to look like? People would say, well, I want this program and I want this and I want the sermons to be like this. I want them to make me feel good. I want them to be 22 minutes long. You know, you have all this. You fill out the survey, and then, then whoever was starting that church, they would look at all those surveys, and they'd say, this is what the people want. This is what will get them through the doors. And so they would build a church around those parameters. And it was well-intentioned. It really was. They just wanted, They just want to reach people. And so you want to reach people, you say, well, what, what, is it that will, what is it that will get people in here? And then once they're in here, then we can teach them more and learn more. Maybe they'll become more mature in Christ. That was, that was the model. It was well-meaning. It was well-intentioned. It was generally focused on reaching people in in our communities it was generally effective in reaching people that were already churched people who had some notion in their head already of what church what they would like their church to look like and and they would end up in this new church because they were being catered to it was a little bit self-centered but even then even in the 80s and 90s, even that, that recently in our history, these folks did have that little bit of church background, that little bit of understanding about who Jesus is, a little bit of understanding about what it means to serve Christ. And so their answers on the surveys gave some semblance of actually honoring God. But what is it that the world would like from the church today? Affirmation without any accountability. A new morality that's not based on God's righteousness. 
they like us to twist and ignore scripture to make sin into virtue and virtues into sin. How far can the church compromise before it's no longer the church? Would we like a Jesus who preaches love but never obedience? The problem with this compromise is it's never, ever enough. And we have seen enough compromise in American Christianity. We have sought to make the church easier for people to schedule, and we succeeded in making the church optional for people to attend. We sought to make instruction in the church easier, and we have dumbed down biblical literacy to a point that we have not seen it in many generations. We have sought to accommodate people's felt needs, and we end up with a membership that places their own personal interests above the mission of the kingdom. We sought to do good things. What we achieved maybe is something else. And churches in this country are dying by the thousands every year. And by and large, they go down blaming the culture and clinging to the day when they were a thriving congregation. But they've been tolerating the soft idolatry of human creeds and traditions. They have been infusing the church with human politics and corporate strategies. Everyone in here, whether you know it or not, everyone in here has an idea in their head of what the church should look like. But when we use ourselves and our experience as our standard for what the church should look like, we are by default saying the church should look like me. And folks, the church should look like Jesus. The church has to look like Jesus. And the world has seen a church that looks like its members. And they are unimpressed and they're not listening. But a church that looks like Jesus will change lives, will have people's attention because Jesus gets attention. Jesus is remarkable even when we're not. I think this idea of purity has become even more important in our era. Like Jesus, like Jesus, we advocate for the purity of the word. We advocate for the purity of the faith. We advocate that the life of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus and the opportunity to be like Jesus is the ultimate goal of any fellowship of believers. And so, yeah, we are on Sunday morning returning our children to the room 
I know for decades now, Children's Church has been all the rage. A lot of you, probably like me, grew up in an era where there was no such thing as Children's Church. Maybe you hated it. I know there were times I did. Here's the thing. We're going to take <laughs> we're going to take a rather exceptional view. And we're going to try to do something that's somewhat counterintuitive. We're going to invite our children to be a part of the church with us. We're going to expect them to glean something even from the sermons of that knucklehead. We're going to ask them to stretch their spiritual minds rather than feeling like we have to bring everything down to where they are. But at the same time, we're taking the opportunity to rebuild our Sunday school program so that they do have programming specifically where they are. You know why? Because the Word of God changes lives. Because the Word of God allows us to pursue being like Jesus. What do we want? What is it that Christ wants from us? If we're going to be like Jesus, shouldn't we have 12-year-olds who see themselves as needing to be in their father's house and about their father's business? That would be like Jesus. That's not a crazy goal to pursue if we're taking Scripture into account. In fact, we want to become more dogmatic about teaching the Word. We want everyone here to have an absolute solid foundation in Scripture, to be able to defend their faith and share it with others. Our foundation is the Word, and we want to be like Christ. I know a lot of times we think the church is the church building. And more than that, sometimes we think the church is the church building from 10 to 11 on Sunday morning. If it goes to 11:15, that's not the church anymore. And what happens here on Wednesday night, that's not the church anymore. It's only what only what happens here. Well, I know we still have a lot of young people that are here on Wednesday night that aren't here on Sunday morning. I know it bugs some of you. Believe me, it's not a problem we ever stop thinking about. We would love for them to have a relationship with you. We would love for them to be a part of this fellowship on Sunday morning. We pray for it. We grieve when it doesn't happen. But let's also remember that most of you are not there on Wednesday night. So their experience of church doesn't include you. They're wondering where you're at. Now you say, well, that would be weird. That programming is all for young people. Why would I go listen to their rock band and then listen to their study on issues that are facing high school students? That would be really weird for me. Well, just as weird as it is for you, it's weird for those young people to think about being in here on Sunday morning in a church that they think is for old people, myself included. 
We want to bridge the gap. We need your help to bridge the gap. We need your love to bridge the gap. We need you to be like Jesus. How is it that accommodating the self-interests of our members is a better strategy than obedience to Jesus Christ? Because that's how the church has functioned for decades. We can't do it anymore. Because we want to be here 40 years from now. And we don't want to be here as we are today. We want to be here reflecting the glory of what God is going to do in our future because we were faithful to his mission. We have to believe that if we're faithful, one of two things is going to happen. Either Jesus is going to come back and then we can just all stop worrying about it. Or Jesus is going to reward our faithfulness by doing such powerful things that the glory days of our past will pale in comparison. Because his faithfulness is always greater than ours. Haggai says, in 2.23, on that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you, make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. Hmm. Well, that doesn't make much sense. I'll make you my signet ring. So you understand the significance of Zerubbabel, he is a descendant of David. The remnant can have no king. They're not in control. They're still under Persia. They still answer to Persia. They can't have a king. They can't have a palace. They can't have a throne. But the prophet says, Zerubbabel, I'm going to make you my signet ring. You know who owns a signet ring? The king does. What Haggai is saying is I'm reestablishing the line of David Because God promised you it would never be broken. That it would reign eternally. And guess who shows up in the genealogy of of Jesus Christ? Through his father in Luke and through his mother in Matthew. Guess who shows up on both sides of the family tree? Yes, they're cousins. Yes, it's not weird. They're, they're, They're separated. Zerubbabel is in both family trees. I'm reestablishing the line of David because I am going to bring a messianic king who will set up his kingdom that will last forever. The signet is a restoration of David's throne. It is the lineage of the Messiah. It is how everything is restored where it's supposed to be. It's how everything is made right. We still serve the same king. Nothing else. Nothing else. No human creed, no tradition, no expectation, not my personal assumptions. The church isn't supposed to look like me, and the church isn't supposed to look like you church is supposed to look like its king so that when the world looks at the church it sees Jesus Christ.